It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The coronavirus crisis is difficult for adults, but what about kids? Child developmental psychologist Tova Klein says parents should be upfront with their kids because they know things have changed. The children are feeling this. They know their schools are closed. They know it's bizarre that mommy and daddy are home. They're feeling the stress. So every child knows that something's going on. So it really is a matter of addressing it with a narrative or a story. Kids want the truth, she says, but parents should deliver it sensitively. Today, our speakers delve into childhood in an anxious age. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve the greatest challenges of our time. Today's discussion was held by Aspen Ideas Now, a digital content initiative at the Institute. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, children of all ages were experiencing increased stress. From 2007 to 2017, suicides among 10 to 24-year-olds rose by more than half, and the number of severely depressed teenagers went from 2 million to 3.2 million, according to the Pew Research Center. This rise in anxiety was felt before the COVID crisis. So how are children and teenagers processing this new stressor? How should parents talk to their kids about the pandemic? Can some good come of this? Joining Tova Klein are Lisa Demore and Kate Julian. Klein directs the Barnard College Center for Toddler Development. Demore wrote the book, Under Pressure, about the rising level of stress for girls from elementary school to college. Kate Julian is a senior editor at The Atlantic. Her recent piece, What Happened to American Childhood, is on the cover of the May issue of the magazine. Here's Kate Julian. Lisa, I know that you deal with this issue a lot in your work with adolescents and their parents. Before we get to the pandemic, I'd love to back up and talk for a minute about this word, anxiety. What is it? What isn't it? When is it healthy? When is it unhealthy? I'm so glad you're asking. The discussion around anxiety has definitely, I would say, in the last five to 10 years, gone down a path that seems strange, actually, to many psychologists. And what I mean is that our culture has come over time to talk about anxiety as though it is always pathological, always a sign that something is amiss and um, perhaps even a sign of a diagnostic question. And in psychology, we have always been of the mind that anxiety is a normal and healthy emotion. It's not pleasant, but it's protective. It's there to alert us when something's wrong. And one of the metaphors I use is to think about it a little bit like the human pain response, that we feel pain when something's wrong. It gets our attention, gets us to pull a hand away from a burner or something like that. And we see it as useful, though unpleasant. And anxiety operates most of the time in the same way. If you're driving and someone swerves and cuts you off, you have an anxiety response. It helps you to be protected and protective of yourself. Um, what we want to really recognize in psychology is that a lot of anxiety is healthy so long as it is actually um, in response to a meaningful threat and in proportion to the threat, that it's actually happening at a level that makes sense. The only time we worry about anxiety being pathological is if there's anxiety when nothing's wrong or when the anxiety is way out of proportion to what's wrong. So for instance, a kid having a panic attack over a quiz. That's fascinating. Um, and I, I wonder, Tova, how this idea 
plays out, if this idea plays out in your work with families of younger kids, how do you help a family to distinguish among sort of healthy anxiety and more pathological anxiety? I have a six-year-old and a 10-year-old, so maybe we could talk about that age range. Maybe we could talk about kids a bit younger. When would a parent want to be concerned about a kid's anxiety level, and when would you counsel them not to worry about it? Right. It's such a good question because so much of my work with parents is just on this issue of, you know, when should they worry and when should they not? And I'm always talking to parents about, you know, children get anxious often and we consider it normal depending on, you know, where they are developmentally. So the way I phrase it is there's anxiety, lowercase a, like normal, how do we support our child through this experience? Or capital A, which is more like, oh, I should be worried about this. It's getting in their way of functioning. So some of the differences are for for young children, you know, preschoolers, toddlers, but also for elementary age, new experiences can cause children to get, you know, what we call aroused. You know, it's it's stressful. They need a parent's support to help them through. Um, Younger children often have separation anxiety. They might need somebody really close to them to be by their side for a while and gradually pull back. But that's not a bad thing. When we help children through that lowercase a anxiety, we're actually helping them experience some stress with support and learn to handle it. When, When we worry about it is when the anxiety starts to overtake their ability to function in whatever normal way for their developmental age. So for example, for your children, a six-year-old and a 10-year-old, if they were actually avoiding going to school, they couldn't go to school, or they were really having a lot of problems socializing uh, or complete avoidance because they were so afraid of the quiz that they were supposed to take, then you start to worry because it's impinging on whatever developmental tasks, whatever they should be doing kind of normally and happily. So it's, it's a matter of whether it's some stress in their life that can be managed and parents can help them with, or if it's kind of overtaking their life and overtaking the family's life, then you should be concerned and turn for help. I think that's such an interesting point. And it almost makes me wonder whether we as lay people have sort of come to misunderstand the idea of what mental health is. Um, I think there's been a lot of sort of uh, talk around avoiding stress, avoiding anxiety, pursuing happiness. And if I'm hearing you both right, that's maybe not really the recipe for long-term coping. Lisa, if mental health isn't about preventing unhappiness in all situations, what's a better way to think about it? So the way we would think about mental health in psychology is that you're having the right feeling at the right time and you're able to weather it. So these are troubling times. We should fully expect that people are feeling troubled adults, teenagers, and kids. Um, And that's appropriate. It's actually strange if you think about it, if someone were like, yeah, this is all fine. Everything's okay. I feel good. (laughs) That would be be grounds for concern. But then it gets to what Tova said, which is then making sure kids can handle their distress. So the distress is not the problem. The distress actually may be evidence of their excellent mental health, especially when things around them are disrupted and difficult. You're saying that at this moment, 
feeling anxiety and worry is not only normal, but totally appropriate for pretty much everybody. Well, what I hope for everybody is they get times where they get a break from it. You know, maybe when they're home Mm -hmm. and they're not worried about contamination or things like that. But if you're out and about at the grocery store, your anxiety should be elevated. And that is actually going to help you keep an appropriate distance from people, make sure you're not touching your face. And the word that Tova used that I want to return to is the idea of arousal, that anxiety is emotional arousal. It's sort of human go time. You know, it's, it's this ancient system that alerts us that we want to be on guard for what's around us. And anxiety has such a bad name that when people call that arousal anxiety, then they often start to think, oh no, I'm anxious. This is a problem. I shouldn't feel anxious. Whereas if we think, no, a degree of arousal in the face of a meaningful threat is actually designed to be protective and helpful to us. So when we sort of turn from an adult in the grocery store, say, Mm -hmm. and that example seems really helpful to me, to a younger child, Tova, how can we sort of think through coronavirus-related stress as it's showing up in younger kids now? What do they need from us as adults in response when they're feeling that level of arousal, when they're feeling uncertainty, when they're feeling stressed out? Yeah, it's such an important question, particularly where we are right now, which is that everybody's life has been kind of turned on its head. You know, for some families, that stress is much, much more than others. But everybody has experienced this huge shift. Children aren't going to school. Parents might be unemployed or they're working at home. So people can be very much on top of each other. Uh, We're not used to spending 24-7 with our parents or with our children. And so for young children, all of these changes does bring up a level of stress because children thrive on routine, predictability, consistency. That's what we give them usually with taking them to school, Mm -hmm. having routines at home. And all of that has kind of gone away, even if things are you know, new routines are in place at home, it's still very different. And so children are showing their stress or anxiety in all kinds of ways. Their sort of tolerance for frustration is down, certainly for young children. And and again, even those elementary age children, you're seeing a lot of tantrums and meltdowns, kind of sassy language, um, a high need for control. I'm hearing a lot about um, four and five-year-olds, very demanding um, in in kind of funny ways sometimes, but, you know, very demanding, bossing people around. I have no idea what you're talking yeah, exactly. about. That does not happen in my yes, head. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, when life is out of control, it makes sense that for children, they're going to look for control in whatever little ways they can. But we're also hearing about a lot of sleep disruption, nightmares, night wakenings, children who don't want to go to sleep, clinginess. These are all signs that children are saying to the parents, I'm feeling the stress of this. Even if you're a family fortunate enough to have set up new routines that feel good, uh, the children still know the difference. And then other families are extraordinarily stressed right now. And the children feel that stress. Young children basically feed off of the emotions and the tone and the anxiety of their parents. They're almost like sponges for the parents. And then the reverse, it's the parents 
who help children manage that anxiety that you know Lisa was saying is so normal given the circumstance, but children turn to parents and need them to help them manage it. So we are hearing a lot about a lot of behavioral challenges right now. And I see that as children's way of communicating, life feels different. I'm not sure what's going on. And at moments, it doesn't feel good. So I think this is such an interesting point when we try to sort of figure out what it means as parents for how we respond to some of the changes in behavior that you're mentioning. So if we're looking at this from an anxiety perspective, we're trying to help our children to cope right? We're trying to model coping with unpleasant feelings. So what does that actually mean for a kid right now who's always had no trouble going to sleep by himself, but suddenly is really scared at night and wants mom to lie with him or wants to come into mom and dad's bed when that's not really been the norm before? What would you say? Like, is that appropriate at this time? Because, you know, this is a difficult time or is this a time when we want to be kind of trying to maintain the, the routines and rituals that we had before the crisis? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. It's like most things with being a parent, it's a combination. Right. So on the one hand, the more routines you have, something from the old, if you had regular wind down at bedtime, which most people do, a story, maybe a lullaby, you know, going over what you're grateful for, whatever that routine was, it's good if that can be in place. But at the same time, children may need a little bit more from a parent. So bedtime might have been easy before, and now they might need a parent to stay closer a little bit longer. So maybe there's just a few minutes extra at the end. doesn't mean parents should be staying an hour in a room with, with a child. But children need us to come closer, us meaning the parents, when they're stressed. And so, you know, extra compassion and kindness can go a long way. At the same time, you still need some limits. Children need sleep more than anything. If you want to know the counter to anxiety and stress, it's sleep. That's true for teenagers. That's true for adults too. So it's keeping those routines, but understanding that children may need you to be a little more flexible. They may need you to change things up a little bit. So if it's a child who never woke up at night before and they're coming running into your room, You might want to come up with a way to say to them, when you come in at night, I'm going to always be here for you and I'm going to take you back to bed so you can feel comfortable. But for the parent to try not to get too stressed about it, for parents, you know, they're pulling out their hair, understandably, because there's so many new behaviors. But children really need parents to exhale a bit and say, my child may need me more now. Let me have her sitting on my lap in a way that she hasn't done in years. That is a perfect segue to teenagers who do not want to be sitting in their parents' laps. And in fact, um, from what I'm hearing, are having a lot of difficulty with the sort of amount of time they have with their parents right now. Um, In my own reporting the other week, I had a very funny conversation with a therapist who was talking about how her own teenage daughter is so sick of her parents and the rest of her family that she has been every night giving a PowerPoint presentation to the family on who was most annoying for that day. (laughs) And on that particular, uh, on the preceding evening, uh, the mom for, for I think the first time in a few days hadn't won the prize of most annoying the dog had um so so lisa you know what we're talking about here 
looks pretty different for teenagers, right? Who are really, in many cases, struggling to have some time to themselves and where a lot of the issues they may be having right now are pretty different than the ones that younger kids may be. Can you talk a little bit about how you're seeing anxiety and stress manifesting in teens that may be different with, than with the younger children? Sure, sure. And I think in some ways it's different. And in some ways, the big principles are exactly the same as what Tova was saying. So, you know, what we're hearing from teenagers is they desperately miss being with their friends and getting to see them and getting to um, hang out in person. And of course, hanging out in person for teenagers usually means, you know, flapping all over each other like puppies, right? So this is really complex and difficult. And adults are rightly being very cautious about letting kids get together because it is hard for them to stay apart. So they are really frustrated about that because teenagers are all about their peers and they really are not developmentally designed to be home 24 hours a day. Um, I think a lot of teenagers feel like they got grounded and they did nothing. (laughs) So I think it's it's very hard in that way. Um, They also are, you know, especially kids at transitional years, eighth graders, high school seniors, you know, they are, I'm watching kids get used to this idea about having to really stomach the loss of major transitions that they were looking forward to. You know, the big eighth grade graduation and, you know, proms and the graduation from high school that kids had in mind. And um, I've watched a lot of kids come past this, but they are deeply sad about it. And of course, now they're coming around the corner into what's going to become of their summers. So for them, it's both about um, being stuck at home in a way that is very strange for adolescents, but it's also then about feeling, you know, real loss and real frustration about um, the things that they have been looking forward to for a long time, um, basically evaporating before their eyes. And so you do see kids who are more upset, um, more frustrated, maybe um, crankier or more withdrawn than um, they normally would be. And, and so then, of course, a lot of parents worry, because I think with teenagers, we really worry about um, emotional distress. We worry that it's a sign of something bigger and more frightening that we need to be on alert for. And that's unlikely. And we can think through, you know, how you know when to worry with a teenager. But the principle that Tova was articulating that I want to pick up on here. Tova, when you were talking about, you know, saying to a kid, okay, you know, I'll, you come in my room, I'll walk you back, you know, or you can hang out a little bit, I'll walk you back. The posture of that parent, and this should be the posture for teenagers too, is you need a little extra support and love right now, but I am not frightened of your emotional distress, and I am not worried that this is somehow damaging to you. And, and I think that It is very hard for parents of little kids and teenagers to see their child change, to see their child in emotional distress as a result of, you know, very real forces. And I know for a lot of parents, they think, is my child at real risk here of ongoing difficulties? Will my child be harmed by being this upset? And We can get into the details of the whens and the hows of that, but for the most part, we humans are built to withstand emotional distress. We have fabulous strategies for doing it. Um, Defense of humor, 
which that teenager with PowerPoint, right? Like that's a great example of using humor as a psychological defense to titrate a difficult experience. That's what that fantastic kid was doing. Um, we, I really want parents to feel reassured that distress is expectable right now. Mm. And they probably only need to worry if it doesn't come and go or if their child or teenager is depending on negative coping mechanisms, um, you know, being really awful to be with or using substances or not taking good care of themselves in another way, then there's grounds for concern. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for great content on the internet? Head to aspenideas.org to find videos and podcasts about science, happiness, health, and more. Hear from speakers from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public programs held by the Aspen Institute. Sit back and learn, be entertained, and change your perspective. Go to aspenideas.org and start exploring today. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Kate Julian. So talking about coping in teenagers, and we can turn to younger kids as well. One thing I've noticed about teenagers is that they don't necessarily like to be told what to do. (laughs) (laughs) So, So let's say your teenager is not turning to some healthy and helpful coping strategies. Let's say your teenager is doing the opposite. What on earth are you to do in terms of helping to sort of allow them to find their way to some things that might help them to manage their stress right now? Well, so let's imagine that the negative coping strategy that your teenager has come up with is to binge watch Grays all day, every day. Yes, so that sounds this, highly this, this is what they call Grey's Anatomy. And, you know, Grey's Anatomy yeah. is this highly bingeable um, uh, universe that they go to and I have no problem with it, but if it becomes, you know, what they do with their time all the time, that's a good example of a negative coping strategy. So it's coping insofar as it does help them feel better. It's negative insofar as, you know, they may not be doing their schoolwork or they may, they're not being physically active or they're not participating in family life. Um, so it doesn't help them down the line. So I think the first thing for anybody who's using a negative coping strategy is to recognize they are trying to feel better. This is an attempt at that, and it may even be a pretty successful attempt. So I would say to a teenager, look, I get it that if you lose yourself in grays, you don't have to think about the um, incredibly difficult crisis that we are in that seems to be going on for a very long time. Like, I get it. Um, But the problem is, (laughs) this is not going to work for you over the long haul. What else do you have by way of coping? Will you Mm -hmm. take a walk around the block with me? Do you want to go, you know watch TikTok and tell me all about it and show me the dances later or whatever it is, but to get them to think about other coping strategies that don't have such negative downside down the line. That makes a lot of sense. Now, Tova, I want to bring you back in here. One thing that I, (laughs) speaking of sort of some of the friction points between kids and adults right now, have noticed young children saying it's like fingernails, I think on a blackboard to parents across America right now are two terrible words. I'm bored. (laughs) (laughs) We have been hearing that a lot in my household, especially from my six-year-old. And I'm curious about this because in my own reporting, many of the therapists I spoke to people who specialize in anxiety expressed concern. And this is pre-crisis 
about how little experience a lot of kids have managing boredom and how little a lot of kids who are really scheduled and pretty busy have, you know, experienced it, period. So how do we think about boredom right now? Does this have anything to do with anxiety? And how can we help them with that feeling? Yeah, so it's an interesting question because boredom in and of itself could be a whole topic for an hour-long discussion. Um, And I think it goes with something Lisa was saying earlier about parents kind of being sold this idea that children should never be either distressed or unhappy. I think Mm -hmm. parents have also been sold this idea by no fault of their own, the parents, that children should never be bored or what we call bored. I would put it in quotes even. Mm. Um, But, you know, pre-pandemic, children were so scheduled, young children, you know, so the elementary school, preschool, toddlers with structured activities, meaning instruction, you know, whether that's soccer or Italian lessons or chess, after school sports, they're basically being told what to do by an adult, how to play, what to play with, what order. And where it leaves children is with little time or space for thinking, for being with themselves, for making things up, for wondering on their own and not having to say to themselves, am I doing it right? Is it what the adults want? Is it what all the other children are doing? But what we call boredom, I think people used to call daydreaming in another era. I love right? that. Um, which was just down. Some people call it downtime, right? Where a child just is. And in that time, children have their own ideas. They can learn to calm themselves. They can daydream, pretend, imagine, but they also do a lot of problem solving. You know, just figuring out if they are feeling like, "Ah, I have nothing to do, which is what a lot of children are saying right now. They say, well, what am I going to do? And they might jump up and start building with their blocks, or maybe they're outside and running around and they decide to climb a tree in the backyard. All of that thinking is really important. It says, I can have my own ideas. That's the basis of learning um, and relating. But also, I can figure this out. I can take ownership of who I am and what I want to do. And that's true for a three-year-old and a 10-year-old. But when we don't give them that space to say it's okay to also be by yourself in your own thoughts, then we're, we're denying them those opportunities. And so I think what's happened is, um, you know, in terms of sort of anxiety, is that we went from children really in many places being you know, in a, in a full day of school and then maybe an after school, aftercare program that's often structured um, or activities uh, elsewhere. And they didn't really have time to just be. And now they're saying, oh, what do I do with myself? On the plus side, I will say there's a silver lining here. I keep hearing from parents, even in pretty stressed families, saying, you know, because we're home working and we're trying to clean the house and do all these other things, my child has really figured out how to play more on his or her own. They've come up with games. They've come up with ideas. The siblings are playing more. And I think that's what happens when the adults, the parents in this case, pull back and respect that children will be able to figure this out. And then boredom doesn't become a bad word anymore. 
I think it's also so key to understanding how we can make our lives as parents less stressful for ourselves, right? I mean, I've noticed this dynamic among my friends over the past couple of months, going from this moment where we felt like we needed to schedule the kids every minute of the day. And yes, there is a benefit to schedules and routines right now, as you were saying, Tova. But I think that as time goes on, some kids are actually getting better at entertaining themselves. And that can make life for the adults easier in a way. It's win-win, really. Yeah, it's yeah. truly win-win. I want to turn from that to the question of how, and we've touched on this a little bit, but I think there's more to be said, how children's anxiety and adults' anxiety can, I don't know what you want to say, form a vicious circle, how they can sort of ping pong off of each other. What do parents need to be doing right now to manage their own mental health so that it's not forming this kind of loop within the closed system that is our, our, our household right now? And Lisa can talk to this too with teenagers, but certainly in younger children, you know, there's, there's a great deal of neuroscience data on this now that actually shows, particularly with younger children, so the children under five, mm. how the parent literally is the regulator of the child's emotions. So when the parent goes up in their own arousal and anxiety, the child can go with them. This is particularly true if you have a child who by nature is a bit anxious or a lot anxious. The parent's role in controlling that, helping the child manage it over time is to be aware of their own anxiety. And so the parents have a tall order right now, but I would not want to put any more pressure on any parent anywhere. But um, with all the stressors and all the roles that parents are taking on, you know, they're being expected to be a parent, but without a break at all, mm. um, a, a school teacher, which they're not, right? None of us should be our own child's school teacher. They're cooking, they're cleaning, they're worried about finances. So they have all of this on their plate. And for parents, they really have to be able to exhale and say, okay, there's no way any one human being can be everything to everyone. It's just, it's an impossible task that we've been asked to do. So I think for parents to know that they really are in a position where they have to monitor their own reactions, kind of be taking their own emotional pulse, giving themselves breaks, even if that's just for 10 minutes, Yeah. Um, whether it's to walk outside, if you're a place that you can do that, if it's to take a little longer shower at some point in the day, but to really say, I have to manage me. And that might mean lowering your expectations about work, about what your children are going to do in the day, really letting go in lots of places and being kind to yourself. Lisa, how do you see the role of parental anxiety in teenagers' lives playing out, especially at this moment? Well, so for me, the ground zero for this is how a parent reacts when their teenager or small child becomes very, very upset, hmm. right? So let's assume that there are going to be meltdowns and we're probably coming into a high season of meltdowns um, for, you know, for kids of all ages, right. As you know, as everybody is worn thin and the summer yeah. is not looking so great. I mean, here come the meltdowns. And, and so for me, I'm really preoccupied with that moment and how the parent manages in that moment and manages their own anxiety in that moment, because it is anxiety provoking for your kid to have a meltdown. And for me, the, 
the direction parents take with this can really make it way better for the child or way worse. And the metaphor, the time in life I always think about when parents usually get this so right, so we all have it in us, is when a toddler falls down and scrapes their knee. Um, that we all know the first thing the child does is look at their knee and then they look at the parent's face, you know, and that this gets a Tova's um, comment about the research on little kids. Mm. And what's happening on the parent's face dictates what happens next for the child. And usually we are very good in this moment as parents. We are able to um, manage our face, <laughs> not, not you know, look horrified and say, you're okay, you're okay, come over here, we'll clean you up, it's going to be all right, even if inside we're feeling quite uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so what I want parents to plug into, and this is also parents of teenagers, is that capacity, which we have. And so, because we know, right, if we go, (gasps) when we see a child with a scraped knee, that the child will freak out. And so it's taking that model and then applying it to the teenager who is having a meltdown and trying to occupy that space of maybe on the inside, the parent is feeling pretty uncomfortable and pretty scared, Mm -hmm. you know, in the same way we might be if it looks like a pretty bad skin knee. But on the outside to the teenager saying, I hear you this stinks. I can't believe you lost your last year of camp. I am so sorry. Um, But to provide a containing and empathic force, regardless of how upsetting it is for the parent in the moment, because all through development, kids take their cues from us. And if they think they've got a 14-year-old size problem, and then their 45-year-old parent is freaking out. Then they think, oh, gosh, I thought this was a 14-year-old size problem. It's a 45-year-old size problem. It's worse than I thought. So, <laughs> so this is why what Tova said about taking good care of ourselves is so essential because we are so worn thin. And we can't actually accomplish that meaningful split from our own distress to reassuring a child if we are exhausted and worn completely, you know, down to the down to the studs is how I've been thinking about a lot of parents. Like people are kind of down to the studs, doing the best they can. So when we think about how we manage how we present our own feelings to our kids, one thing that comes to mind for me, particularly right now, is this question of how we're talking to kids about the current crisis, how we can manage the flow of information into our houses. This has been on my mind a lot um, due to some questions from my 10-year-old. And I also know from reporting that there's a lot of past research on disasters like 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, the Boston Marathon bombing that shows, maybe not surprisingly, that kids consuming a large amount of news coverage of these really distressing events doesn't really help them out mental health wise. In fact, it has some, some, it's associated with some real problems. On the other hand, and this is where it gets really tricky, not talking to your kids and kids not having information about what's going on is also bad. So Lisa, how do you have some thoughts on how we can strike the right balance here? I'm finding this as a parent to be one of the more challenging aspects of this. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing that you mentioned, and I'd love to hear what Tova thinks about this by ages, is at some level regulating how much news is 
being, you know, your child's being exposed to. And that will really depend on ages. And certainly by the time you get to adolescence, you don't have a lot of capacity to regulate that and they can understand it better. Um, But it's interesting because there's a lot of news coming at them from a lot of different sources, especially teenagers. And a lot of it is coming across from their own chatter with one another um, online. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, it's the quality of it isn't so good. Um, or it's it's unreliable, I think, in its quality. And so then comes a moment when your teenager asks you what you think or asks you where you think this is all headed. And, and I think this is a really um, powerful moment because you have to be honest and mm-hmm. you have to be clear. And you do this because it's the right thing, and also because teenagers can tell when you're lying. So you know you have to you have to <laughs> like you know little kids. I will I will add. I've been looking at the research on this, and little kids yeah. are pretty good BS detectors. Yeah, they know they know us better than we know ourselves. So the way I think about these communications all the time is I think about them having two parts. There's the lyrics and there's the tune. Hmm. So there are the words we say as parents, and then there's the emotional tone in which we say them. So. It may be that a teenager says, do you think I will be able to go to college this fall? Right. A really loaded and powerful question for an 18 year old. And the parent may need to say back, I think there's a very decent chance you will not be going or not be going in any way that you imagined. And that is where the lyrics are right to the point and even saying something that the parent knows full well the child does not want to hear. But the nature of how it's said is with a sort of warm, almost matter-of-factness or a kind empathy coding that communication communicates to the 18-year-old, I can take it, though I don't like it, which makes it true also that you may be able to take it, though you do not like it. And those exact same words could be said in a way that communicates so much distress or such a sense of it being out of control that it actually terrifies the 18-year-old. So for me, the goal for parents is that we have these conversations when we're in a space to do it Mm -hmm. because you need a lot of emotional muscle, especially if it's really close to your heart that your child's experience is being disrupted in this way. And so one of my favorite phrases that I think can be used at all ages is when they don't catch us in a good place and they've asked us a point blank question and either we don't know or we know we are in no position to answer in a way that's going to make it better. Um, I think it's great to have phrases like, that is a really good question and it deserves a really good answer and I will come right back to you with one. Yeah. Yeah. And to buy some space and time to go take that extra long shower and take a lap around the block, you know, and then have the conversation. Yeah. No, that makes good sense. So, Tova, with younger kids, it's a little different, right? Because they are not, especially since school has been closed, is likely to be getting information from the outside world, not through you, right? They don't have phones, probably. They're not hearing stuff from their friends. So do you have any guidance or thoughts on what we can do as parents of younger kids to help them feel um in the loop in the way that they need mm-hmm. to, um, but not overwhelmed. And I realized, you know, I'll tell a little story. I realized how tricky this is because I've been trying to strike this balance with my six-year-old. Um, and I had him watch a little 
cute animation that NPR did early on about the coronavirus. And I've tried to just bring it up, you know, from time to time and ask if he has questions. And he'll say, nope, 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 nope. (laughs) And then he's been keeping this little diary just to practice writing where every day he puts down something that happened that day. And, you know, for the first several days, it was, you know, pretty you know, everyday stuff. I had a ham sandwich, I played football, you know, that type of thing. And then one day my, my breath stopped. He wrote today I am alive. Um, Mm. and I realized, you know, that there's a lot going on in this guy's head. That's not necessarily coming to the surface. So any, any guidance here would be really helpful. Yeah. You know, in many ways it's different from teenagers, but I would also say, you know, listening to Lisa that, it's very much the same, but at a different developmental level. Mm. And what I mean by that is regardless of the age of the child, they still need truth. They still need, you know, um, honesty put out there both at their level and with a lot of management on the parents' part of their own emotions in this. So for example, I've had a lot of parents say to me, no, I have not given my child a story about the virus. I don't want them to know anybody has died, mm. which is, you know, it goes back to our discussion of bad news as opposed to happiness in children. The children are feeling this. They know their schools are closed. They know it's bizarre that mommy and daddy are home. They're mm. feeling the stress. So every child knows that something's going on. Um, I'm in New York City. Certainly every child here is feeling it. So it really is a matter of addressing it with a narrative or a story so that the child has a way to make sense of why am I home and not going outside so much? Why don't I see my friends who I usually see every day? Why can't I visit grandma? Why is it only on FaceTime? And so when you give a child some narrative about this, and again, at their level, so using the words they're hearing, you have to use the word coronavirus or quarantine, if that's what they're hearing, or pandemic. It says to them, there's something going on out there. And like Lisa said, it's the parent's tone that they're going to pick up on. So when the parent says to them, we're going to be okay, we're staying home right now to be safe, we're all washing our hands. That allows them to know that they're part of something bigger. Everybody's washing their hands everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everybody's staying home with their family everywhere. It says to the child, we're all working to stay safe without scaring them. The hard part is not overwhelming them. So you don't want to make it such a big deal. If it's a parent who's bringing in groceries and scrubbing them down frantically, that will scare a child. But if you say, we're going to keep everything a little bit cleaner, I'm going to wipe the counters a little bit more, do you want to help me? The child feels like, okay, we're going to all be okay, but nobody's lying to me. If you keep saying there's nothing wrong, your young child's going to really get scared. Well, then why are we staying home? Why can't I see my grandparents? What they immediately do is they say, I must, I must have done something wrong. Children are very self-centered at these young ages. Not that teenagers aren't. They are too, <laughs> but for different reasons. Um, so they take it upon themselves to say, what did I do wrong to cause this? Mm-hmm. So that's the other piece is to really say to children, it's not your fault. This is not anything you've done or that we've done, but we're all working to keep everybody safe right now. And then the other piece I would throw in there is really filtering 
what news is being heard by children because they are hearing a lot. Mm -hmm. TVs are on, parents are talking to each other, or they may just see you frantically texting a friend and they watch that. They see the tension in the parents. So to really monitor how much overwhelm the parents are getting with news, news today is not pleasant for anybody. And the children are going to pick up on that. And then the final piece I would say is to monitor your child's misinformation. So these young children still pick up on what's sort of in their bathwater, what's around them. You know, is an older sibling saying something? Mm -hmm. Did mommy or daddy throw something out at dinner that you didn't even realize you said? And then they take it in at their level to try to make sense of it. So you can ask your child, particularly those elementary school age children, so what have you heard about coronavirus or what do you know about it? To try to filter out the misinformation, no, it can't come in through our windows or you're not going to get it by holding the phone so that that you can clear up whatever it is they're thinking about that, that may not have come forward yet. That's, that's really, really helpful guidance. Now, there's one question, sort of one big thing that we haven't hit yet that I think is really important to hit, and it may not be obvious um, to people who don't have kids who have pre-existing anxiety issues, but the truth is um, a lot of kids who had anxiety disorders before this started are actually feeling pretty happy right now, right? So if you had a separation anxiety um, issue, you get to be with mom all the time right now. If you had social anxiety or sort of generalized anxiety that really came out at school, you may be a lot more comfortable now than you were. And I'm hearing from friends who have kids with anxiety issues, a lot of concern about what will happen when this is over whenever that is, whenever we go back to whatever the new normal is, how will these kids cope? And a couple of my friends have even gone so far as to say, you know, maybe I'll homeschool him. He's so much happier now. So talk to me about that. No, no. No, no. Tom and I are like, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, Okay. So there's two things. Like if I could hire airplanes to fly banners over American cities. Okay. The first airplane banner would say, anxiety is a normal and healthy function that is only occasionally pathological. Yeah. And then the second airplane would say avoidance feeds anxiety. Mm. And and that is like a full stop. That that is one of the most um the least controversial principles in all of psychology is that avoidance makes anxiety worse. And it's important to understand why, because then it really helps people understand why they can't homeschool a child who's suddenly loving this, you know, why they can't indefinitely homeschool. Mm-hmm. So um when, ang- when avoidance feeds anxiety, it's a two-course meal. So say, for example, I am afraid of elevators under normal conditions. When I think about taking an elevator, my anxiety goes up. It's uncomfortable for me. When I think, oh, forget it, I'll take the stairs, my anxiety goes down and I feel much better. So that's reinforcement, you know, very basic psychology stuff. So I feel better. I want to do that again. That's the first course. The second course is I never have the experience of getting on an elevator, seeing that they really almost always work exactly like they're supposed to, and discovering that elevators are actually not that frightening. So that's the second course. So we are in this experience right now of state-mandated avoidance. Mm-hmm. And so um, my first thought, my first thought, I was like, uh-oh, all these kids who have been trying to not go to school and whose parents have been 
helping them to, I'm using finger quotes, manage their anxiety by maybe letting them use avoidance before all this. Okay, boy, are these kids going to have a long road back, but it has to be a road back. And it does not matter if they have to take the babyest of baby steps when things return to normal. They must baby step their way back toward the things they were frightened of while learning how to manage their anxiety as they go. Because the cost here is they could end up with a highly constrained life. Avoidance causes anxiety to spread and grow. It does, it solves the problem beautifully in the short term. It sets up big long-term problems. So on that note, as we sort of look to the long-term part of this, I'd like to end by asking you each if you can try to imagine some long-term good that might come of this current situation from a kid's mental health perspective, that is. Um, So Tova, maybe we could start with you. Yeah, I actually can see a lot of good that could come of this. Not that any of us ever would have wanted to be in this. And I want to recognize that some families are extraordinarily downtrodden right now. You know, basic needs aren't being met. But given the context that we're in and we had no choice and we're here, I think a lot of good can come of this. We're already seeing it. There's incredible stories of humanness, just people doing kind acts for other people, whether that's delivering groceries to the neighbor's doorstep because they're older or they're sick um, or, or larger, you know, pieces that's going on. And all of that is showing children there is lots of good in this world, which is a very important message for them to experience. But I also think, you know, when we look forward, I don't know if it's nine months, a year, five years from now that we think about this. And that children have that sense of, wow, that was hard, that I was worried, we were scared, I couldn't see my friends, but hey, we got through it. Mommy and daddy took care of us. We still had some semblance of school. We played, we had fun, and we're okay. That's where resilience and strength and positive coping comes from. I'm pretty sure that that's going to come for lots of people in time. And then the the third piece that could really come out of this is bonded relationships. So siblings who are home together who may not have been. I have a college child who came home and a high school child at home. And I can see their relationship growing in all kinds of ways. I hear this from parents of, of younger children all the time that the first couple of weeks was just crazy and fighting. And now the parents have had to back off because they have to do their work. And the children have really bonded to each other that much deeper. Mm -hmm. So all of those are pieces of really positive outcomes, but in the long run, once, once we get through this. Sure. I love those ideas. Lisa, do you have anything to add? I think it's the the same thing. Yeah, but it's the same thing, but sort of at a teenage level, or when I think about adolescents and young adults, the kids I care for have till now um, been bathed in this idea that you're supposed to feel good all the time. And if you don't, something, you know, someone needs to fix it. And what I am welcoming, given that we have no choice but to reckon with this, is that with distress being so totally universal at this point, 
I feel like the shame has been taken out of it. And I think there has been a lot of shame around, you know, psychological distress and you shouldn't have it. And if you do have it, it's got to be fixed. So if we take the shame out of it, because now everybody feels distress and we do help young people get used to this idea that, well, of course you're going to feel distress and this is a really hard time and check it out. You have all of this capacity for withstanding it, coping your way through it, um, finding the relationships that help shore you up and maybe enrich your life as a way to get through this. What I do hope is that we have um, a cohort of young people who look back on this and see it as a time when they became much more at ease with the idea that they could get upset and get through it, Um, much more at ease with the idea that anxiety um, serves a useful purpose to them. And um, my version of what Tova said, it actually does um, recalibrate everyone's yardstick for what constitutes a crisis. When you go through a real crisis, after that, um, a tough breakup, having a professor you don't like, not getting the job you really wanted, they do actually feel smaller. We have data showing this, that when people are able to weather a very difficult circumstance, they are more resilient in the face of new difficulties. And so the bottom line is stress is growth giving, so long as it is not overwhelming stress. And like Tova said, there are families where this is not a growth giving experience at all. It's awful. Um, But stress is growth giving. This is a lot of stress If we can help our kids through it, which we can, they will come out of this more able to handle the curveballs that life will be throwing at them when things go back to normal. I love that very, very hopeful note. And with that, Lisa, Tova, thank you so much for joining me. It's been really a pleasure talking. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Good to be here. Lisa Demore is a psychologist and New York Times columnist. Tova Klein wrote the book, How Toddlers Thrive. Kate Julian is a senior editor at The Atlantic, where she oversees the magazine's dispatches section. Her cover story, The Anxious Child and the Crisis of Modern Parenting, is in the magazine's May issue. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by the Aspen Ideas Now team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.